Hello and welcome back to season three of In Her Lens Climate and Film. I'm Nadine and I'm your host and in this podcast we center underrepresented voices in film and television. This season I'm completely focusing on where the fight against climate change intersects with filmmaking and the entertainment industry at large. I researched out those who are working tirelessly at this intersection, questioning things like where the industry finds itself in the larger conversation, its impact, how it's leveraging its power, and how we can drive change forward. I am so happy to say that I have a two-part episode for you this season. We are getting to know the nonprofit story consultancy, Good Energy Stories. This company supports TV and film creators in telling wildly entertaining stories that are honestly reflecting the world that we live in now, a world that's in climate crisis. So today we are joined by the company's director of strategy, Bruno, and this Thursday we are joined by Aisha Nieta, who is a Climate Lens Fellow. Bruno Almeida Crioga, who uses the pronouns he, they, is a culture and technology strategist from Bolivia. He is a founding partner of Maybe Ventures, a boutique design and strategy consulting firm that is focused on regenerative business. He is the founder of Pixie Smith, a gender fluid fashion company designed to die from the beginning. Bruno is a product researcher, designer and strategist at financial tech company Plaid. And today, he speaks to us from his experience in his fourth role, Director of Strategy at Good Energy. Through Good Energy, Bruno works with all major Hollywood studios like Netflix and HBO, Lionsgate Paramount, and TV networks like PBS and CBS. Previously, they worked at global design and innovation firm IDEO and led the early days of IDEO's responsible innovation portfolio development. In their free time, Bruno dances with fire at music festivals across Southern California. In this episode, Bruno talks about their career heartbreak that led them to finding good energy. They break down the company's mission, vision, and offered pillars. We talk about what Bruno's role of director of strategy really entails, and we extensively break down the pace layering framework. Now, this framework is based on recognizing that different parts of, let me just call it, quote unquote, the organization changes at different rates. And now thinking about the organization as the world. We discuss Good Energy's case studies, designed targeted interventions, and its story-forward approach. We talk about their presence at COP28 as well, and how the fossil fuel industry has been leveraging the power of entertainment forever. Um, look up Petrol Princess on TikTok. I'm so thrilled that all of you get to meet Bruno. This episode is filled with so much gold. I will see you after. Make sure to take notes. Here is Bruno Almeida Crioga on In Her Lens. Uh, Bruna, welcome to In Her Lens. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to talk to you about everything, um, good energy stories and much more. Um, before we get started on uh, talking about you, um, I did design four questions around the seasons of the year as a kind of quick fire to get to know you a little bit better. Are you down to answer those? Yeah, I'd be so down. 
Okay, first one, spring. What is the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning? Um, I have pre-workout and go to the gym. <laughs> Such a healthy answer. <laughs> I love It's the best way to start the day. Um, summertime. If you could go to a concert tonight of any artist, uh, alive or past, who would you go see? Amy Winehouse. Oh, such a good answer. Yeah, no uh, doubt. Me too. Um, fall is an easy one. Are you coffee or a tea person? Coffee. I love tea, but mm -hmm. coffee. Coffee. And the winter question, do you have a resounding word or mantra that you carry with you when the days are a little bit darker? Uh, yeah, actually, not like specifically, but mm -hmm. what comes to mind is like, just forgive yourself. Just mm. be easy on yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's easy to have a bad day that you don't forgive yourself during, yeah. um, as you're feeling bad about it. So that really helps. I think this is being graceful with yourself. It's a very, yeah. very difficult, but very important thing. Um, thank you for answering those. Um, those were really thoughtful questions. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'd love to know a little bit more about you. Uh, where did you grow up? Where are you based at the moment? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Mm -hmm. um, my dad's Bolivian. My mom's Brazilian. And when I was 14, I moved to Miami, which is where I live now. Um, but I just moved back to Miami a year ago. I left mm -hmm. Miami after high school for college, stayed away for a bit. Mm -hmm. And now I'm back um, to live near my family again. Beautiful. Tell us a little bit about Miami. What do you love about living in, my, in Miami? I mean, above everything, being near my family has been yeah. really wonderful. I have a seven-year-old sister. I am 29. Oh, wow. She's seven. And we have the same parents. That <laughs> so is magical. <laughs> it's just like I've never been in her life in the day-to-day, -day, you know, because I've always lived in different cities and came in for birthdays and holidays and whatnot. But now being able to be there for like, you know, the first day of school after the summer and like a movie night on a random Wednesday um, is my favorite thing about living in Miami right now. Um, and Miami is a really great city, but genuinely my family is what I'm enjoying the most. What, well, talking about school, what was schooling like for you? Uh, did you like the traditional education system? Did you find your way in it or was it something that wasn't a good fit for you? What did that look like? So... Yes and no. I feel like I always excelled academically, um, but I was always also a little bit of a like rebel um, in how I approached academics and projects. I always wanted to do like a different type of project in high school than what was assigned. I would talk to the teacher and try to like renegotiate the deliverable to make it more interesting. <laughs> renegotiate the deliverable. I love it. Yeah. And like, you know, and that continued into college. Um I was like, instead of an essay, can I write, like, you know, make three posters by hand and then scan them and write like small things about that. I don't know. Um, and then in college, um, <laughs> I got an internship, my dream internship at IDEO between sophomore and junior year. Um, it was an incredible summer, like probably my favorite summer of college. Um, and IDEO is a design and innovation consulting firm. They popularized design thinking. Um, and then I went back to college and then they offered me a winter internship. And then that winter internship went from being three weeks to, hey, what if you take the semester off and like work for us through the summer if you're interested? And I was like, actually, yeah, I'd love to do that because I can't afford to go abroad. Um, but I knew my parents would never be okay <laughs> with me just like taking a semester off my junior year of college to work. Um, right. So I didn't tell them. <laughs> and I just took the semester off and I worked through um, 
through that junior, no, yeah, junior year spring. Um, at IDEO, we were working with the MIT Media Lab and Target on the future of food. Um, Very cool. And then I remember that summer, uh, my family was like, all right, Bruno, like, where's your report card? Like, how are your grades? You always have your grades by now. And I consistently had good grades, but I think they were starting to get worried that like maybe I, I right. started like partying too much. I don't know. And, I was, and like eventually I was like, you know what, mom and dad, like, actually, I like didn't do college <laughs> this, this semester, but, but I worked <laughs> like I was doing, I wasn't like being lazy about it. No. And they were like, what the, <laughs> like they had a little like angry moment and they were like, okay, now just tell us about your internship. Like what, what is did that you saying? Like, it's easier to ask for uh, forgiveness than to ask for permission. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I was being responsible about it. So, responsible about you know, it. Yeah. that's what that's where I mean. We're like, yes and no. Like I was always paving my own path within what I wanted to learn, but staying within what a traditional academic system is. Like I still graduated on time, accelerated some classes to do so. Um, and and yeah. And what did you what did you uh, what was your degree? My degree was in engineering psychology at Tufts University. Um, and so engineering psychology is the application of cognitive psychology to product and systems design. So it's almost like industrial design, except instead of focusing on how to make things easier for the body and the way that the body works, like ergonomically, it's about the mind and like how much the mind can actually take on, um, as well as culturally and emotionally, what are people going to resonate with, um, and then that's what I proceeded to do professionally as well at IDEO. Yeah, which is really cool. So did you stay on after college with IDEO? Yeah. So I finished that winter internship that became <laughs> extended. And actually, I wanted to extend that internship. I was like, can I do one more semester? And my boss was like, if you take one more ses semester off, you're not going to go back to college. Yeah. And so go back to college or I will not hire you again. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, okay, hands off. going back to college. <laughs> And then I graduated. They did hire me. Mm -hmm. um, I started full-time as a consultant at IDEO as a design researcher. Mm -hmm. um, and I stayed on for like, I, I, my total time at IDEO was six and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. And how did you become involved in kind of the intersection of climate justice and storytelling and then specifically in the entertainment industry? Yeah. So I... Um, was very passionate about human-centered design. Mm -hmm. um, you know, by my major engineering psychology really is up that alley. Um, and the intersection of design, psychology, and technology always, you know, uh, was interesting to me, especially because I genuinely believe that it would have a positive impact on people's lives. Mm. Um, but there were a lot of projects that I was noticing where I was like, okay, we're designing something that's really great for an individual, but when you look at the collective impact that doing something like this has, right. it's actually bad, mm -hmm. whether it's because of the packaging, the material, the way things are being sourced or made. And it's like we're solving a problem for a specific type of person using human-centered design, but are we being responsible about the impact that this has on society and nature? And so that question drove me to become more interested in tech ethics and design ethics um, and other forms of design other than design thinking, other design processes other than design thinking. Um, and I, at IDEOS, led the early days of our responsible innovation portfolio. So responsible innovation is kind of this umbrella, right, of innovation that is more mindful of nature and DEIJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Um, 
And <laughs> long story short, that process broke my heart. <laughs> I really believed that like design and and you know goodwill could drive us to have amazing climate work and amazing DEIJ work. And IDEO did have amazing work to show for those portfolios. Like it's not that I suddenly started leading work in those fields that IDEO had never done. No, I looked back into our existing work and I was like, wow, we've done all these things. We're just not telling the stories about how we did this on climate, how we did this on uh, DEIJ so that we can do more of this work. And in doing so, I... <laughs> I had to confront the real, like the unfortunate reality that oftentimes this work is not profitable. Um, the work that uh, is more responsible towards nature, more responsible towards communities, because um, our systems, our financial systems, do not reward that kind of behavior in the way that we reward more extractive behaviors. Right. Um, and so it broke my heart a little bit as I said, and that's where good energy came into my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> Broke my heart and then good energy came yeah, in. Yeah. So. And, and that's when I started applying this responsible innovation lens to the world of entertainment. Right. Um, and I want to clarify that like, I don't mean to say that, you know, the climate and DEIJ work that is happening in the private sector is, <laughs> is, you know, pointless. There's a lot of impact to be had there. I think that I just realized that for me, what I wanted to do there and the impact that I thought I could have there, um, I couldn't. Um, and, and confronting that reality is what what yeah. broke my heart. Yeah. Um, but really kudos to everyone doing the work out yeah, there. Yeah, I will have to say the same thing. Like, it, I do think it, uh, things are designed for certain people can't do all the things and that kind of self-awareness yeah. about what fits and what doesn't. Totally. And that's how good energy came. Yeah, about, which is... Yeah, and I'm happy to talk about... Should let's we dive talk into about good energy? good energy. I am such a fan <laughs> of the work of good energy. I know that you started freelancing with them initially to work on the playbook, if I'm correct. Um, there yes, are so many great things correct. that energy, good energy does, um, good energy stories. Could you tell us the primary mission? Of course. So good energy is a nonprofit um, that supports storytellers in Hollywood as they portray climate change in their stories in a way that are more accurate of our reality or that paint futures that are more informed by the existing knowledge we have about climate change, whether those futures are positive or negative. Um, and so ultimately, our goal is to have fictional TV and film, specifically fictional, um, actually reflect our climate reality. Because we know from research uh, that out of 37,000 plus scripts over a five-year period from 2016 to 2020, the term climate change shows up 0.56% of all those scripts. That is, um, that's like a few hundred statistic. times. Yeah. And when we bring in other terms like solar panels, fracking, fossil fuels, uh, sea level rise, right? We had 32 other words. That number goes up to 2.8%. Um, and for comparison, like football shows up like eight times more than that. And dog shows up 13 times more than that, than all those 33 words combined. And I'm not saying we should talk less about football or less about dogs. I love both. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we should just talk a little more about climate change, given that it is a reality that we're contending with in our day to day, but not seeing reflected yeah. on screen. And how did good energy start? Because I know it was already a thing before you started. Yeah. So... Anna Jane, the CEO and founder, um, is 
you know, the heartbeat mm -hmm. of good energy. She was a climate activist. She worked in climate communications specifically. Um, and someone reached out to her from the Hollywood sphere because they were looking for someone with her profile to interview for a show, specifically yeah. Madam Secretary, yeah. Um, yeah. that TV show. Because a lot of the characters and whatnot that you see on TV, you may not realize, are actually based on real people. Like uh, writers will try to interview people who fit this profile to be able to create a great character around them. Um, and they were looking for someone who was a climate activist, but who had a parent who was a climate denier. Anna Jane's father is a pastor at a mega church in Alabama and is wow. a climate denier. I had no idea about um, this. Wow. And so, yeah. And so that experience, right, of getting interviewed about her experience as a climate activist with a father who is really religious. And, and that dynamic is literally mm -hmm. portrayed in the show. Yeah. They have the religious father, the climate activist daughter. She was like, <laughs> <That's>, wait, <laughs> yeah, this is a thing. Like I can, I can tell climate stories through Hollywood, not just through these like infographics and more like, you know, traditional climate activism communications channels. Like I can use entertainment instead, use is the wrong word, but like I can do this work through entertainment instead. And so that's how Good Energy was born. She decided to start this uh, entertainment nonprofit consultancy um, because there's a whole field out there of these, right? Like um, Define American helps studios, writers, storytellers better portray immigrants and immigration stories. Um, Glad does it for uh, gender and sexuality. Um, Every Town does it for when gun violence is going to be portrayed in in TV and film. You can actually, you know, consult with them. And so now we have that, ecos, that right? for yeah. climate change. And I think it's so interesting because we were talking about it a bit when we spoke ahead of this conversation. Um, like designated drivers, just to tell you know whoever's listening right now the power of entertainment. Will you uh, share that story? Of course, it blew my mind. I had no idea. Yes. <laughs> Oh, no, this is like my favorite fun fact. So, um, you know, you may have been a designated driver for your friends, or you maybe are really grateful you've had a designated driver on a night out, um, or at least maybe grateful that someone you love had a designated driver, right? Um, but what you may or may not know is that designated drivers were made a thing in the U.S. by Hollywood. Um it was specifically the Harvard Alcohol Project, led by the Center for Health Communications in Harvard. Um, it was an experimental approach to see, hey, can we use mass communications uh, to create this phenomenon that was already a thing only in Scandinavia and import it into the U.S.? Um, and so they worked with all the major Hollywood studios, as well as major TV networks like CBS, uh, PBS, et cetera, NBC. Um, and they started portraying like in any scene in a sitcom or a movie or whatever where like people were drinking, they would start weaving, you know, oh, I'll be the designated driver or like jokes around designated driver. There's a scene from Cheers where someone's like, oh, yeah, no, we're fine. Like he's going to drive us. He's our designated driver. Mm -hmm. And the guy's like, wait, yeah. I'm not the designated driver. You're the designated driver. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they, they like around make it yeah. really yeah. funny, right? They're not being preachy about it because when you're going to introduce something like that through entertainment, it could not feel like chocolate covered broccoli right. like it it genuinely has to be just candy mm -hmm. yeah like pure candy mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and so that trickled into you know president like literally presidents like bush and clinton talking about designated drivers other uh 
you know, public entities starting to talk about it. Private entities started to talk about it. Like State Farm Insurance had a whole thing around it because, of course, the car insurance company wants designated drivers to be a thing. Um, Magic Johnson became the face of designated drivers in basketball. There's a whole video of him being like, you know, the MVP is the designated driver. Um, And in a six-year period, so this study was launched in 1988, this project, and then by 1994, fatalities in the U.S., uh, drunk driving fatalities, uh, reduced by 30%, um, that is which is an insane number. Um, and then in 1995, the following year, 16 European countries rolled out their own versions of the drunk driving campaign. Yeah, we have one in the Netherlands. It's uh, BOLP. Uh, it's like a name, but if you, it's like an acronym cool. for like un, undrunken driver. So it's like, oh, are you going to be the oh, bulk tonight? That's, that's kind of what, yeah, <laughs> that's the Dutch version. Yeah. I've, 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 I've heard people be like, who's DD before, but I think people just say that's yeah. Bulk is funny. funny. Yeah. Uh, super cool. Um, it really, really is just the prime example of the power and influence that media and entertainment specifically in terms of tv and film and that kind of talk has um, which is why i'm so excited about what good energy does uh you are now the director of strategy um what does your role uh specifically entail and how did you Im- uh, evolve to this position because i know that you started somewhere else yeah so um as a director of strategy i um i kind of have my hand a little bit in all the different business units that we have, all the different departments, because I support all of them with the strategy that I, uh, you know, put together, that I develop. Um, And so in my responsibilities are leading stakeholder conversations that are essential to shape our strategy. Deep listening is core to how we run our business. So we're often talking to writers, executives, showrunners, agents, um, even, you know, novelists, scientists, et cetera. Uh, to see how they are experiencing the intersection of climate and storytelling. Um, Because right now, you know, we have a lot of climate science, but translating that science into a really engaging story that, again, genuinely feels like candy is tough. Um, And so I really go deep into understanding the needs that are out there and develop our strategy for the organization accordingly. Um, And work with, you know, the team to develop said strategies accordingly. Some teams I'll just say, hey, here's what I found about what you're doing. Here's the feedback. You know, here's some recommendations, but you know this department better. You do what as you wish. Um, But then this also informs the higher level strategy that informs, you know, the entire North Star of the organization rather than the individual business units um, where I'm, you know, all the way from our mission of having by 2027, 50% of scripts mentioning climate change. That is our goal. Um, My responsibility is how do we translate that goal into actual programmatic efforts and budgets and prioritization, relationship strategies, um, client strategies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also develop our workshops and run our workshops. We train writers, executives, showrunners. We just had a workshop at COP28 that was more for like a non-entertainment industry audience. And so I lead the development of those workshops. Um, I don't lead the business development afterwards, like selling them, um, but I design the workshops for good energy. Um, And those I would say are my main responsibilities. I actually don't interface as much directly with writers and showrunners to like advise on scripts. 
but I am working right now with a um, production company on doing foundational research uh, to inform a film that they're going to create, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, a hand in <laughs> so many things. Rant. No, 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 it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you hear director strategy, you can kind of think of what that might look like, but it's really nice to specifically know what does that role actually yeah. mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so specific to each organization. Yeah, no according to the strategic needs, gaps, et cetera, like strengths that the org already has. Um, um, I think a really cool thing to talk about is the pace layering framework. Yes. And uh, this is all about, I mean, for the people who don't know, it explores how different layers of systems change at different rates. So it's kind of like stacked layers and they loop and they move at different speeds, kind of if you want to put it in your head as an image. Um, I guess all dynamic, systems carry this kind of structure and they kind of have identified six different levels starting at the top as the fastest being fashion art commerce infrastructure governance culture and nature will you walk us through this uh framework a little bit <laughs> of course um so this framework when i was in my heartbreak <laughs> with my career i think is what lifted me back up um because i really saw this and thought, wow, I do want to work at the culture layer. Like that is yeah. what I want to do when it comes to climate impact. Um, and um, why, right? This framework, as uh, you just explained, Nadine, um, is like six concentric circles. The outermost circle is where change happens the fastest. And the deeper you get into these circles, the slower change is to create. Right. And so from outside to inside, as you had said, Nadine, that's fashion on the outermost, then commerce is the second fastest to change, then infrastructure, third fastest to change, governance, fourth fastest, culture, fifth fastest, and then nature, sixth fastest. Or I guess you could say slowest. Right. And they say nature as in human nature. So changing someone's human nature is really, really hard. It takes a lot of time. So the next layer of depth of change is culture. Um, and this framework argues that, you know, while it may take longer to create change at the level of culture compared to governance, infrastructure, commerce, or fashion, once you change something at the culture layer, everything above that layer moves with it in that concentric circle. As if, imagine, you know, a, a planet rotating, right? And when you affect something at the core, mm -hmm. yeah. it affects every layer above it with it as it keeps rotating and change happens. And then that change lasts longer. So let's go back to the um, designated driver example to bring this to life. People went, uh, this project, right, went at the culture layer and said, we need to culturally introduce the designated driver as a concept to the United States through mass communications. Uh, they also collaborated with government, but also naturally uh, different public entities at the governance layer, which is you know the next sh deepest layer from culture, um, started being reshaped. Presidents are talking about this policy is being developed to be harsher on drunk driving, um, which then at the infrastructure and commerce level starts impacting things. Basketball teams are starting to talk about it. Uh, State Farm Insurance now develops a whole marketing campaign around it. Um, and at the fashion layer, actually, um, when I was doing research on this, I ended up landing on a, um, 
a vintage t-shirt being sold on eBay that said just designated driver on it and like a car. And it looked kind of like rock and roll-y. It was like making fun of it. And it had like a 1989 on it, which is the year after this campaign was launched. And it was being sold as a, you know, vintage t-shirt. And so you're seeing that impact uh, roll across these layers. And that is what we are, this is the theory of change that leads our work around climate. Um, If we you know, shift the cultural perception of climate change, everything will change with it. And we're not saying that us by doing this work will directly lead to policy change, right? Um, This work uh, contributes to the movement, but it's hard to attribute any specific impact to it. Um, What we do and the way we think about what we do is that we set the cultural conditions for change so that uh, policies and you know business strategies that other people have been pushing for a long time, activists, politicians, uh, subject matter experts for years have been working, let's say, on climate policy, right? Um, but if we talk about climate change more in the stories we're telling and make it more enticing, it becomes difficult for gatekeepers to continue gatekeeping that policy and not letting it through because now there's cultural pressure from the public and from their own peers to let that through. Um, We saw this in the movie Roma, actually. Uh, It's a very clear case study. Um, Roma is a fictional movie uh, filmed in Mexico um, uh, about Mexican domestic workers because, you know, in Latin America, domestic workers um, do not have rights oftentimes. Um, And so this story tells a beautiful story. This movie, it tells a beautiful story about a domestic uh, worker in Mexico. And it's a claim is, you know, attributed or it says that it contributed, right? Attributed is tough, but it was so popular that within that year, so much policy passed to protect uh, domestic workers in Mexico. Not because that was not a point of focus before those activists and policymakers were already fighting for those things, but suddenly the whole public is paying attention to this, right? So there's that cultural clout in a way, that cultural weight on the topic. Yeah, this pressure that comes, it's like within force. And it's very interesting to start thinking about why certain things do or don't get passed and where these ideas come from. Exactly. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I do want to talk about maybe some specific strategic um, targeted interventions that you're trying to do with this framework in mind uh, at Good Energy. Is there like a specific project that you're like, okay, this is kind of where we're going with that? Yeah. I would say that so far, a lot of our work has been like baseline setting oriented, right? Like we collaborated with uh, the USC Norman Lear Center on a frequency analysis, which is how I know, you know, that only 0.56% of scripts mention climate change. Um, And now that's a baseline. Next year, we're going to run another study to see how that's changed from 2020 to 2023. Um, And if it's going up or not, Um, because then we can actually have a metric on how culture is, you know, interpreting and telling stories about climate change. And then what we're working on developing is, um, in a way, priority themes or stories to tell. Um, We honestly don't come into the room with an agenda, right? Like our uh, agenda is to help the writers tell the story they want to tell in the best way possible. Um, And we see our duty there being like, 
portraying climate change uh, accurately um, and in an engaging way that doesn't fall into tropes. However, people often ask us like, hey, what are some priority stories that would have a lot of impact, right? Because some storytellers come to us at phase zero when they just know they want a story about climate change. Um, And so we're now working on developing what those might be um, so that we can have some more targeted efforts around it. And again, we are not a production company. We don't put out stories. Um, We're not going to push these topics onto the projects that we're using. It's just um, so that when our, you know, collaborators come to us, uh, we can at least say, hey, here's what we believe based on expert research and conversations um, right, would right. be a tar- an interesting targeted story to work on, a, a theme to work on. Um, yeah. Ultimately, though, again, the targeted strategy is supporting as many writers as possible to tell their own stories because um, there is such a huge number of climate stories and types of stories out there, but they're not being told. And we know from research that more often than not, when climate change is portrayed on screen, it's usually like white men being showed worrying about climate change when the reality of who's (laughs) being affected by climate change is not necessarily just white men. Um, Mm -hmm. No, 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 they're not. (laughs) Um, I think what's quite interesting in this conversation always is also research Mm -hmm. um, and the value of research. And I want to relate that kind of to what it, what are useful tools in the climate justice and then I, when I talk about tools, I also want to talk about emotions. Mm-hmm. I think that as I've been working on this project, so much information, so much research has put stuff in perspective as, you know, the facts that, that you've given and the statistics you've given that are stunning, which make, but can sometimes also feel a bit overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little about, uh, about the idea of, okay, do we use hope? Do we use rage? Where do you see kind of research fitting into affecting people and what do you think is a useful tool to move people totally. forward? Totally. Yeah. I mean, we, we as good energy are very research backed in what we do, right? Like we're primarily a story forward organization, like nothing, uh, none of our efforts can ever sacrifice the quality of the story we're working on. Um, however, we are very research and scientifically backed, Right. Um, and before I dive into that, the reason we took that approach is because creatives in Hollywood aren't used to working with scientists and activists and vice versa, right? Like activists and scientists have a tough time working oftentimes with Hollywood writers, um, because they have more of a quote unquote agenda, right? Like activism is centered around an agenda and science has these very specific facts to be portrayed, but storytelling is about taking that creative liberty. And so we're that bridge, um, However, that bridge has to be very strong in its foundation. Um, And that's why we also have really deep relationships on the research side. Um, We work with USC, as I said. We also have a close partnership with Yale, um, the the Yale Program for Climate Change Communication specifically. Stanford also does a lot of really fascinating research on climate change and climate change communications and attitudes towards it. Um, When it comes to emotions and climate change, the leading emotion being used at large has been fear in order to try to drive action uh, around climate change. So, you know, the world's going to burn, you need to do this or that, or we're screwed. Um, stories of apocalypse, you know, 
to this day, one of the main stories people talk about as the climate change story they remember is The Day After Tomorrow. I think that movie came out in like 2001 or like 2005, you know, like, and so really long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Research is starting to show or has shown that fear actually causes paralysis and despair when it comes to climate change. Um, and it's likely because, you know, if you become the greenest person in the world, um, the systems that are driving climate change are likely just going to persist um, with or without you. And it would be nice to think, you know, everyone can change together and we can do this and have an impact as like just individual human collective. But the reality is that that's a really hard thing, you know, to, to really see and grasp because we are also trapped by these systems that are extractive and are driving a lot of the climate crisis. Fear works really well to get people to decide that they want to stop smoking cigarettes. Um, so it's not that fear is a bad emotion to drive change in behavior. It's just that in the context of climate, it's not good. Um, hope. I wonder if that's like an individual versus a, versus a collective, collective thing. question. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. something there for sure. Um, I will say like this, this whole Good Energy Project has made me so interested in diving more exactly into that. Um, yeah. of just like what emotions and what context drive better change. Hope is being, you know, has been being investigated as a way to drive more climate action. And it is better than fear in stories. Um, but it gets a little tricky if it is just a little too utopic and too positive. It just like, it's kind of like feels unrealistic. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. work. Right. Um, and so in that sense, it still feels a little too distant. Um, and I know that there is research happening now also studying rage and how rage might drive climate action. Um, unfortunately, I can't talk about those results publicly yet, but I will say that when you think about, you know, um, Trump, frankly, um, and a lot of politicians, but Trump comes to mind as someone who really in recent American memory wielded rage as a way to drive behavior and yep. collective action. Um, it's really effective. And so what if we use that for climate change as well? Uh, what if we use other things like status or, you know, um, what if we use be like belonging we've been using, but like st status, I think Tesla as a company, you know, withholding my opinions about Elon Musk. Um, I think Tesla did an amazing job at aligning a sense of status with electric vehicles and greener behaviors. So there is this world to unpack about what other emotions we are not using right now in order to drive climate action because we are so dominated by climate communications from the science space and the activism space. We haven't really bloomed in the entertainment and storytelling space yet. Yeah, it's super, super interesting. Um, I want to talk about a little bit specifically the thing, like maybe three things that uh, Good Energy Stories does. I want to talk a bit about maybe the playbook and a little bit more about your services that you guys have, um, just from whoever is interested. <laughs> yeah, totally. So um, the Good Energy has uh, four main offers, really. Um, so one of them is the playbook. That was the very first thing we developed. It's a foundational source of knowledge on almost like basically everything you need to know in order to like incorporate climate change into a story, but it is like 160 pages long. Right. So, it's um, a proper playbook. <laughs> it's a proper playbook. And I recommend using the, the, uh, it's not the appendix table of contents <laughs> to find what yeah, you need to yeah. go to. Um, 
but that is a consistent source of knowledge. We know that last year we got 200,000 clicks on it, um, on our website because it is a digital playbook. Um, and it is something we consistently reference as we develop other services. Um, then we have consulting, um, where, you know, storytellers, studios, production companies, really anyone at any point of the development process of a film, uh, can bring us in, um, so that we can support with yep. anything they need. So for example, right now I am involved in a project supporting the very foundational research of identifying climate themes that this production company can, you know, recruit a director to tell a story around. It's like, they don't even have an idea what the story might be, but we're already involved all the way to like, you know, the script is already finished basically. And we just need you to like, make sure this makes sense in the way we're portraying climate change. And we do like small edits here and there. Um, and then there's workshops as the fourth one, right? So first the playbook, second consulting, uh, and third is workshops. Oh, and for consulting, we don't just work with uh, these studios and networks, right? Of course, Netflix, Disney have been uh, collaborators before, but we've oh, also worked okay. with Spotify on podcasts. Um, Very cool. Yeah, we did like yeah. a true crime series. It was really wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, I true mean, crime and climate change, like genuinely, yeah, really, anyone really, out really there great intersection. In that, get on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I highly recommend diving in. Um, workshops is where we train writers, executives, showrunners, etc., cetera, uh, on different topics. So for example, how to apply the climate lens, which is the storytelling tool we use, uh, when we come into any room, um, they can apply a climate lens to any story. Um, and it's an hour long, they can bring us in, you know, any day, any number of people can participate. The first 30 minutes we're presenting the second 30 minutes, you're applying the knowledge to an actual story, um, just to see how easy it is to apply the climate lens literally to any genre. And what I mean by the climate lens is that um, it's a storytelling tool that leverages climate change as a generative tool in any genre. Um, and so, uh, am I allowed to curse? Yes, you can, please. <laughs> Great. So I like the example of, you know, what if Fleabag fucked a climate denier? Like, right. because of how that show is and those characters are and how the setting interacts with the people, like, it doesn't make Fleabag about climate change, but it makes this hilarious plot line around it. You're applying a climate lens there. And then you can also have an entire... Great example. I think it does that with religion a little bit. So yeah. what if it was climate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and now we're developing a workshop on the intersection of climate change and intersectionality, specifically focusing on race and climate. So it's almost like the level two, right? Like now you've studied how to apply climate change to any story. Now let's dive into how you can portray how climate change impacts people differently based on their identities, as well as how people yeah. react to climate change differently based on their identities, right? Um, and that's in development right now with two collaborators, the Hip Hop Caucus and the Center for Cultural Power are our partners that we're co-developing this workshop with. And then lastly, we do gatherings. Um, so um, for the playbook launch, we did a gathering of, of the minds <laughs> to, to really celebrate the playbook launch. We uh, are key sponsors and collaborators of the Hollywood Climate Summit and are also, you know, doing smaller dinners, bigger events as uh, over the course of the year. Um, and those are our four offers. Yeah, getting into a room. Yeah. That's also really important. Exactly. And like seeing people face to face. Yeah. 
And you uh, you mentioned it earlier, but you were at Co-op 28. Do you already have some kind of insider feedback on what that experience was like coming from a climate or from an entertainment lens at a climate conference? So uh, I cheated a little bit and I called in remotely for the session. So we had two facilitators on the ground, two facilitators remotely. Um, I just couldn't make it to Dubai for it um, because I had to... Um, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> just, matter. I have to dance. Honestly, <laughs> priorities. <laughs> no, no, that's one. Yeah. Thing, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I dance at festivals on the side, but... Um, which is also another part, I think, which is really nice talking about seeing you as a whole person as well. Like, I'm really good at being in your body. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, I also want to enjoy culture, not just work in it, right? True. And like dancing to music is how I get to just like really thrive and enjoy it. Um, so in between the dance and, moves. And now sometimes I'm like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and oh my God, okay, just an aside. Recently, I was like, someone, a musician was singing at a festival and he had made this new song and the lyrics went, you know, the world's on fire, but the girls are different. <laughs> and he had this like electric guitar. And my mind was like, that's a climate <laughs> that's, mention. That's, that's a climate, climate mention right, right there. there. <laughs> I'm like dancing on stage and I'm like, I'm home. He knows. <laughs> my worlds really that's do collide. Funny. But it's a great um, example. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say, you know, I mean, COP28, uh, we had a lot of conversations about whether we wanted to participate in that or not, right? Like as a as a nonprofit in the entertainment space. And ultimately, I think what was most special for us about COP28 is that this is the very first year that COP includes culture as one of the main things in its programming. Like they actually had a cultural wow. pavilion yeah. and everything. And before this year, that was not at all part of the conversation. Um, and something that does break my heart a little bit about COP28 this year is that there were so many fossil yeah. fuel lobbyists there, more than like any country had delegates, <laughs> there were fossil fuel lobbyists. And so that that breaks my heart a little bit, especially because the fossil fuel industry has been leveraging Hollywood to influence public opinion for over a century, um, yeah. like for real. Um, in 1939, Standard Oil collaborated with Disney. Um, and so all the Disney characters were all over the Standard Oil-like um, magazines and stickers and then the gas stations, big billboards. And there's even, if you look up on YouTube, Standard Oil Parade Disney, there's an actual animated parade of like Mickey and Minnie and the seven dwarves and Goofy and everyone just like celebrating Standard Oil, a massive fossil fuel company. Sometimes, you know, when I hear stories like this, I'm like, oh, there's been way ahead of the for game so for long. so long. And yet we for so, so often are like tensitive about using the tools that are at our disposal that people who are leveraging it in a different way Forever. have been unapologetically Forever. doing so like and yeah. and you know i can't imagine a fossil fuel company being that bold today with you know can you imagine elsa from frozen celebrating like shell um Oil. Yeah. But, like yeah fracking. fracking but they still do it um if you look up petrol yeah. princess on tiktok it's this uh, influencer whose family owns a shell gas station and shell pays her to create content about like there's a video of like just getting my snacks at the shell gas station blah 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 blah, blah and they're like promoting it and talking about some of the deals and whatever because tiktok is where the youth is today right so the fossil fuel industry is still using tactics to target the youth today via mass communications um yeah the i think it's the american gas association the aga bought um what's her name that really oh my god 
the really famous Julia Child. The AGA, oh, yeah. the American Gas Association, bought Julia Child's kitchen to convince Americans to stick to gas stoves. Um, wow. And now we know that gas stoves lead to a lot of health issues and are bad for climate change. And studies were starting to show that back then. Um, and, you know, anticipatorily, they were like, no, we need, you know, we need a home run culturally here. And they were so successful that that stove is at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., Right, like that's how successful some of these stories. Like you just can't make no. Shit up. That's how successful the fossil fuel industry yeah. is with their efforts. And now the AGA, you can still you literally if you look up American Gas Association, you know, foodie uh, influencers, you will find posts with foodie influencers on Instagram and TikTok using those gas stoves um, and promoting yeah. them. Um, so it's the same tactic, just a different medium. It's still the same intent, um, and it's time for us to do the same for climate change you know yeah. with that level of commitment and intensity and and entertainment like um shell had an in-house film production company since the 1940s until 2014 i think um and i think they you know they probably let it go because they've moved on to social media frankly um so we need to be doing this for climate change yeah. like it's our responsibility to and um i think that We've often heard the criticism that, hey, isn't this propaganda? What you're doing isn't this climate propaganda? And one, no, because we are not coming into the room with an agenda. Again, if a storyteller wants to tell a story that has an agenda around climate, we will support that. If they want to tell like a really weird climate story that has like, you know, a mixed message that we can't really understand, we'll also help them do that. Um, but really, why are you are you mad? Like, if we were doing propaganda, would you be mad about it? Like, aren't you mad that <laughs> Shell and no. BP and these big fossil fuel companies have been doing this propaganda for hundreds of years? Like, yeah. not hundreds of years, but at least a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, exactly. And this is uh, th this is exactly why I've just been thinking about um, COP twenty eight in this way for this past for this past one or this past iteration because of this like there are wins when it comes to culture and then there are all of these losses at the same time and it feels like yeah. we're always balancing on this very hypocritical line as humanity <laughs> anyway oh, yes. um so yes. that is interesting to hear about the there being culture but then again all these lobbyists yeah and you know it's like this is the year that there's culture at cop 20 for the first time and it's also the year that has a record number of fossil fuel lobbyists in yeah. it like it's just strange a strange place, but you know, we do the work we do to keep going forward. Exactly. And, and move the needle in our, in the direction that acknowledges the climate crisis. Yeah. That's really all we want. Like exactly. we want fictional TV to just show what is actually happening. Um, we also know from a study that we ran uh, with USC, we did a survey on audiences, a representative sample of US audiences. Um, and we asked them, you know, to rate whether fictional characters on TV and films reflected their concerns on like their personal concerns on big issues. Right. So when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights, are the fictional characters reflecting my concerns as well? Like to what level when it comes to racism, when it comes to gender, um, when it comes to mental health. And so we had them rating these on scales. And then of course, among that we had climate change and climate change scored the lowest by far. Um, like yeah, I mean, I really can't think of that many things that I've seen where they're talking about or even living in the world where climate change is happening. Yeah. 
Which is yeah. painful. And so, you know, that's why a big part of our, our workshops is case yeah. studies because we there's these small and excellent examples that, you know, back all the way, like one of my favorite examples is from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, and there's a whole, you know, thing there where like the kind of like prissy rich girl sister is like, dad, I need $300 to get a new hat because I'm going to the like climate activist thing, like March tomorrow on the bus, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I'm sorry, you need to get a new hat. <laughs> for that. <laughs> for this thing. Like it's, just, it's a really funny scene. Um, Pokemon also does it. And that one blew my mind. Yeah, this is mind. a great story. Uh, yeah. Speaking yeah. Of, yeah. Okay, this, is, this loops back to my seven-year-old sister. Um, so she's going through a Pokemon phase, which is really nostalgic for me because I, at her age, when Pokemon you know, was younger, was also obsessed with it. Um, and she was watching the Netflix, uh, the one that's on Netflix right now. I think it's like Pokemon Sword and Shield. And there's this one episode where uh, when I was younger, there was this Pokemon called Corsola. It's the coral Pokemon, like a coral reef Pokemon, right? And it was pink and cute and, you know, <laughs> shot bubbles out of its mouth. Um, and I overhear in the new Pokemon that my sister's watching that, you know, the Corsola shows up, but it shows up in its ghost form. Uh, the Pokedex, you know, it's this little machine that they point at, po at Pokemons and it tells them exactly what Pokemon it is. Um, they point the Pokedex and the Pokedex says, you know, this is Corsola. It used to be the coral Pokemon, but due to climate change, they've all gone extinct and now only show up in their ghost form. Um, and I, Shock. <laughs> it just like yeah. blew my yeah. mind, you know? And so I, of course, use that as one of the case studies uh, that we share in workshops. There's also Big Little Lies. Um, in season two, uh, one of the little girls, one of the little daughters has a panic attack because of climate change. Like they're teaching climate change, I think in first or second grade and it gives her a panic attack and one of the mom yeah. moms freaks out. And that's really important because from 2020 to 2023, Google searches for climate anxiety went up by yeah, 585%. Yeah. But that term doesn't hasn't shown up once in fictional TV or film, once. The, and the panic attack showed up, like that's a panic attack, but this yep. concept of climate anxiety, like that's actually the only example of it that I've seen. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of wild that it, 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 it's, it continues to shock me how much I'm having these conversations with people in real life and then how little examples I can put to in a form, in an art form that is meant to be yeah. reflecting what we're dealing with or what it's, what we've designed yeah. it to do. Um, I do yeah. want to look forward a little bit um, in terms of, let's say I was a very green filmmaker um, and I'm mm -hmm. writing a script. What are some ways I can do some planet placement that you've identified, whether that's like in speech or is it something that I could put physically into the space? Yeah. What kind of advice do you have um, to approach Great that? Great question. We actually have a spectrum. Uh, a climate spectrum is the framework that we use because there's endless ways to incorporate climate change into any story, whether that story is driven by climate change or not. Um, and so this framework is just to help navigate those endless ways, right? It's not necessarily the end-all be-all. Um, but there are four elements to this framework. Um, and in order, they are a climate placement, a climate mention, a climate world, and a climate character. And each of those, uh, as you go deeper into that framework, it means that climate change is more central to the story. So the climate character is the most central way to incorporate climate change into a story, and a climate placement is the most subtle way. So let me give an example of a subtle way. Uh, you know the, the movie A Quiet Place? 
Um, yes, of course. <laughs> where like, you know, if anyone makes a sound, these like alien creatures come and like eat you alive. Um, in that story, they have solar panels on the houses um, and you just see them in the background installed because they're a quiet source of energy. Generators are loud. Um, and so you're putting this solar panel in the background in a way that makes sense in that context of that story, but you don't even acknowledge it. That's a climate placement. There's also clever, uh, I mean, I really love how the director of Parasite did a climate placement. Um, he's a known climate you know, storyteller and activist, but he doesn't make it super heavy handed. But the flood scene in Parasite, you know how the poor family's house floods because it's underground. You can actually presume that because that flood was so, um, so intense, um, that was unprecedented. That's not normal right. because no city would have underground architecture like that if floods if like that were day. the norm, yeah. but it seems yeah. like in that world they're happening, right? So you can actually bring them in in a lot of interesting ways. Then there's a climate mention, really straightforward, just mention it in dialogue, make a joke about it, you know, um, or just have someone be like, ugh, climate change, ugh. And Triangle of Sadness, the opening scene, the cold open where they're like- That's so true. Yeah, yeah. when all the models are standing around and the guy's like taking photos, he's like, oh, is that Balenciaga? No, it's H&M. Like he's saying all these things and he's like, all right, like now you're just a bunch of mixed skin, hot models standing around, hashtag inclusion, hashtag diversity, hashtag climate change, and like just moves on, you know? Climate yeah. mention. Yeah. A climate yeah. world is when the setting- of the story is impacted by climate change more than just a little mention, right? Um, but it's actually impacting the story. But the story isn't driven by climate change. The characters, their motivations are not driven by climate change. Um, so an example of this would be The Glass Onion. I don't know if you know that uh, Netflix film. Yeah, it's Oscar nominated. from Knives Out? Huh? No. Yeah, Knives Eliza Out, from Glass Knives Onion. Out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. in that world... You have this billionaire who created this renewable source of energy and like there's a murder in his house and whatever. So clearly climate change is a thing in that world because they're driven to create a renewable source of energy. But that movie is not about climate change. Climate change is not driving a single one of those characters. Money, fame, like status, and like finding out who the hell committed that murder is what's driving these characters. Um, and I also think it's a really brilliant commentary, honestly, on techno solutionism and billionaires around climate change. Like... You know, is, yeah, um, but yeah, that's an, a yeah. really, I think, clever way of putting it in the world. Wally is another movie that is a climate world. Climate change doesn't drive these characters, but you know how. I mean, Wally is such a beloved movie, such and then you have a climate character where the character is entirely driven by climate change, and therefore, because the character is the most important part of the story, that's the deepest way in which to embed climate change into a story. Um, so, examples of that are. Uh, there's this indie film is my favorite example, uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, I highly recommend watching it. Um, it's a film. It has like bank heist feelings to it. Um, and it's this group of kind of like renegade people who all became, quote unquote, radicalized. I think that's the wrong term, but uh, radicalized against fossil fuel industries, either because something happened to them due to the fossil fuels industry and climate change. Like one of them got cancer because she lives near a refinery. Right. Or something happened to someone they love. Someone's mom passed away uh, for a similar reason. Uh, or I think it was during a heat wave. Some, some climate disaster killed her mom. And then there was a farmer whose crops died 
uh, right. because of so, right. So you have this char- yeah. cast of characters, and they decide, you know, um, to blow up a pipeline. <laughs> fu- yeah, they're like, "Fuck fighting these fossil fuel companies through policy. They're too strong." Yeah. Instead, let's do what the Boston Tea Party did during the American Revolution and attack these businesses until they're no longer profitable. Um, because that's the way to kill business. You, yeah. cu- you cut the money. You don't create rules. And so, I and that Brilliant. sentiment in climate change, I've never seen yeah. <laughs> in a story. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's uh, I've never seen that kind of like motivation. Yeah. So um, I really love it as a climate character example. And so for storytellers who are thinking about how to you know dive into this, one check out the playbook. Um, there's a lot of resources there. Um, but two, really start with what you know, like you don't need to be a climate expert to tell a climate story. You are already experiencing climate change every single day in your life, every day, um, to different, in different capacities, whether it's because of the food that is available to you, the, you know, the drinking water that is or isn't available to you, the heat waves that are coming or not, the winters that are colder or not, like the anxiety you're feeling, uh, seeing things across social media, like you are getting impacted. So start there. Um, and tell a story from what you know, because you actually already know more about climate than you do, uh, than you think you do. Yeah. Um, what uh, are you envisioning in 2024 uh, for yourself and for yourself with good energy? Yeah, um, 2024. Well, I just bought a house in Miami. Um, Congratulations. So my priority, I would say, is building building a home out of this house. Um, and um, also... And within good energy, you know, and and another personal one, continuing like creative pursuits. Um, I'm starting a fashion line um, that I'm very excited about. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So just leaning into that. As you said, like playing in culture and working in culture. Exactly. And it's like, you know, the fashion line, it's made to break even. It doesn't need to make money. It's just like I enjoy it. And like, that's the point. Um, And I'm trying to, you know, ask certain questions through that project, like, what if companies were designed to die from the very beginning? Um, so many companies are designed to scale forever and ever. Um, and the only thing in nature that does that is cancer. <laughs> and it's another interesting. Yeah. Point. And so I'm asking like, yeah. you know, this, this, this fashion line is designed to die. There's 78 planned drops and like, it's, you know, enough that it could build a name for itself, but also it's going to <laughs> one day end. And like, that's it. Um, so it's related to kind of this climate, the exploration, right, of of questioning extractive systems and do we really always have to scale and extract or can we have other options? Yeah, there there are a couple group. uh, There's a group in the Netherlands called, it's an uh, Hmm. anti-grow community, I don't want to say community, like union or a group of people and you can join Hmm. and go to meetings and it is questioning all about um, we can't grow forever. So we have to change yeah. the whole system. It's like, what do we do? Yeah. 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 And it's like the same question I've been asking, or similar questions, like what if supply chains were designed to die, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, we are in a way entering a, a pretty likely climate reality that is going to have force us to have to adapt quicker to change in the environment. Um, and so these aren't just hopeful questions. Like these oh, are also practical. questions that we're going to have to answer in business, right? Yeah. And I'm not, I guess delusional enough to think all companies would approach it this way. But I think that if you make it fun and sexy and profitable and culturally significant to have a company that is designed to die or have a supply chain that's designed to die, um, you add that as another viable option for how we run our society. Right. Um, 
and super interesting more to the multitude of ways to do it yeah. you know yeah for sure um and then within good energy um I mean, we're designing more workshops so that we can continue, you know, spreading knowledge at scale. We're going to have more research out there um, to help us better understand how things are moving in the entertainment landscape when it comes to climate. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm working on, you know, I, I'm, I'm working on my first film in a way. I know I'm doing the foundational research for it. I'm probably not going to be involved in the actual film, but that feels really exciting to me. I think that. Um, leaning into, I feel like I'm the, in a weird way, like the business person at Good Energy, even though like elsewhere, I'm often the creative person. Um, and I think it'll be really nice to be in the creative side of things um, yeah, at the end of this cool. research phase. Well, I know I'm looking forward to all of it. And I'm very grateful that through this whole process, I've gotten to know Good Energy and you. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Of course. Thanks for reaching out. My mind is just and so inspired after this conversation. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you for your work and for sharing both your professional and personal stories. And thank you for your passion and thinking. It really makes me feel like we're all in very good hands after all. I've attached all the works that we spoke about in the episode notes, including Good Energy's playbook, and make sure that you follow them as well at Good Energy Stories. As I said, this is a two-part episode, so this Thursday already, you'll meet Aisha Nieta-Brown, who is a Climate Lens Fellow at Good Energy. This way, we are getting a whole nother perspective on the company. I'll see you then. Bye. 